and kittens and musketeers. My name's Alex, and I'm sitting around drinking a little drink, smoking a little smoke. That's not true at all, but you guys might notice from the title of the show and from the intro that this has something to do with the higher side chats. So you may also notice that my voice sounds like I have been gargling glass and doing some other things that would make a throat rather sore. That really hurt to swallow after that statement. I have no ability to do a show right now. So um, I asked Greg Carlwood, the wonderful man in charge of the Higher Side Chats, if I could borrow uh, an appearance I did on his show a few months back, and he was nice enough to say yes. So, yeah, I'm going to uh, throw that after this little intro. But I just want to tell you that, you know, well, the Higher Side Chats is a good show. I've mentioned it on here before. Obviously, I've been a guest of it, so check him out. He's recently started doing a plus episode thing which is pretty goddamn fantastic. It's five bucks a month, and you get extra hours of show, and I think you actually get extra episodes, too. Don't quote me on that. I know you definitely get an extra hour of the show, because that's the one that I've heard so far. Look, I'm poor. I'm new to this. But, uh, yeah, so check them out. <clears throat> you can find the regular show at thehiresidechats.com, and uh, click the Subscribe to Plus link, or go to thehiresidechatsplus.com. And, um, yeah, you can subscribe and all that good stuff. And, yeah, even just the, you know, the free show is fucking fantastic, so check it out. Higher Side Chats, if you like, uh, you know, paranormal stuff, conspiracy theory, just all sorts of good shit. So, yeah, check them out. And uh, thank him for letting me use this episode, because I have no ability to talk for an hour right now. My throat is fucking terrible. So, yeah, that's that. I just didn't want to miss a week. So, check him out, uh, thehiresidechats.com. And, uh, as always, uh, this Alex's show is uh, sponsored by The the Standard in Portland. Facebook.com slash TheStandardPDX. And, um... Yeah, uh, check them out. They're 14 Northeast 22nd in actual Portland, Oregon. And uh, yeah, these things are the things that I'm telling you. Okay, good. Uh, enjoy the show. I had fun with this. Uh, I like Greg very much. And um, his co-host Kyle was very cool too. So yeah, it was a good episode. Talked about the tarot and occultism and and uh, chaos magic, I think. I haven't listened to it since I was on because I hate the sound of my voice. Maybe I'll listen to this one because it sounds sultry and smooth. At least uh, that's what my favorite person in the world told me. So yes. That's that. Uh, enjoy. We're here because we don't buy into the bullshit of mainstream culture. We're tired of the mundane, passionless careers we've been shuffled into as a result of this orchestrated debt-based system of rule, and the stranglehold on education and entertainment by cold, soulless corporations. People, yes, we are frustrated. Yes, we are tired. And we reject the brave roof tranquilizers that are Monday Night Football and an ice-cold Budweiser. We have to stop hiding. Stop hiding behind the headphones and the Cherry Popper 420 username. Let the world see that the resistance is strong and society is changing. There was a time to be anonymous, but that time has passed. And so the Higher Side Chats would like to present conspiracies as the dawning of this new paradigm in the uniform of the revolution. Because bold fashion should mean more than some celebrity meat dresser frat boy in a silly pink polo. 
Conspiracies redefines bold fashion as having the balls to reject socially uncomfortable and unpopular truths from your radiant chest all fucking day. Conspiracies.net. Let them know that you know. Bold designs for troubled times. Hard truths. Soft cock. In the 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. But we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Fireside Chats. Cool. How's it going, freaks and geeks? You know me, drinking a little drink, smoking a little smoke, sinking into my altered state here in sunny San Diego, just trying to not go one toke over the line. I'm Greg Carlwood, and today we're talking chaos magic, Egyptian mystery schools, occult knowledge, rituals, invocations, and even a tarot reading from today's guest, Alex Bolin. But it's going to get too weird for me to go it alone, and that's why my lifelong friend and occasional co-host Kyle Perneville is here to make sure we don't open the gates of Hades. Kyle, my man, what's good with you? Oh, man, I'm excited for this episode. All this stuff is right up my alley, and I'm a very disparate researcher. I, I look at this shit from all these different angles, and so this this guy seems like in the same vein. Yeah, man, it's been a while since we did this. I think um, maybe Duncan Trussell was the last show we did together, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, it's been since January. <laughs> I love that one. That You added a lot to that conversation that I couldn't have invaluable contributions, as one might assume at this point. But I've talked to quite a few guests since then. I mean, Stephen Greer, Michael Cremo, Richard Sauter, Michael Rupert, etc. I mean, are there any comments you'd like to make about anything that struck a chord with you in the last few episodes since we've been able to talk? Whoa. Well, I listen to every single one, and I very much enjoy them, so it's hard to pick a favorite. It's kind of like asking about the best child, <laughs> but I would have to say the Michael Cremo that one I really, really enjoyed. I really enjoyed. Um, to make it even more specific, he was saying this thing about how we're taught in school that we are just material beings and that we always need more materials to make us happy and that happiness is like necessitates more consumerism. And that he says there's this whole other school of thought, which we're coming around to now that isn't taught in school, which is we are spiritual beings and it's all about refinement of consciousness or refinement of your own awareness being able to notice your own patterns and that of other people i thought that was really cool yeah i actually got a few emails that were right in line with what you're talking about so i guess that struck a chord with a couple people um but let's talk about some current events man i mean so many people are asking me about the big two stories that are out there right now the ukrainian situation and the missing flight 370 I figured we could do a little shucking and jiving on these two stories, provide a two-man, less calculated version of a higher education segment. Uh, but what does this Ukraine situation look like to you? Because to me, it seems like a textbook case of a covertly Western-fueled revolution that resulted in, surprise, a new puppet government that wanted to join the European Union and take huge loans from the World Bank and Western banks that they could never repay, putting them in debt forever. Uh, the trick of any good crime boss. But this time Russia said, hold on now, we see what you did here. We 
We don't recognize the authority of this new bullshit leadership that you sponsored. We're going to go reclaim this chunk of land that's historically been more aligned with us. Uh, Is that kind of how you see it? That is how I see it. I mean, I think once you figure out that the finance and the loans and the world banking is so at the root of this, it always is. If you follow the money, you always find out the banking is involved at every level. But uh, let me tell you, I've talked with a lot of people who have no idea about what you're talking about, about the Blackwater types from the U.S. inciting this. Like they've Mm -hmm. never heard about this. They've never heard about anything about Al-Qaeda being you know, more than meets the eye. But I think like to me and you in the conspiracy media, like on veterans today, they talk about this, like this is all common knowledge. We've seen this pattern so many times that when there's protesters, a lot of times the real violent protesters are really specialized military or former like mercenary types being paid to start some serious shit. Yeah, it's messed up. It's definitely part of the plan to to do it in secret. But I mean, once you get wind of it one or two times, you start to see the pattern. And then every conflict, it starts to be your go to. You're like, hey, does this fit that mold? And nine out of 10 times it does. They're saying there was a huge vote, I guess, uh, yesterday. Well, we don't know when this is going to come out, but there's a huge vote where they essentially in Crimea voted to join with Russia, a huge majority And uh, there's actually like marketing campaigns that say, don't vote with the neo-Nazis, vote to be part of Russia. And so it was, a lot of people are saying too that it was like neo-Nazi groups that incited all this overthrow to begin with. So it's very, very interesting that Russia would step in and draw a line in the sand. And to get more on the THC side of things, It's very interesting as well that it came out that the oldest pyramid in the world is underground in Crimea specifically. What is that about? I know, man. It might be like the greatest archaeological find ever because these pyramids are supposed to date back to 65 million years. That's dinosaur time, man. So now that we know the dinosaurs were a lot more advanced than we previously thought, I just can't help but think that... The two stories are somehow related, you know? And I actually printed out this little piece from IntelliHub that gives some greater details and kind of fuels that fire a bit. I wanted to read some of this to you. Uh, Based on the reports out of the region, in August of 2012, a local scientist discovered the world's oldest pyramids, found to have been built during the era of dinosaurs. Although the discovery was made by mistake as the man was merely scouting for water, clues of an entire new realm were open. Interestingly enough, the underground pyramid, which measures to be about 147 feet in height and 236 feet across at the base, is also said to contain the mummified remains of an unknown humanoid creature that measures about four or six inches in height which might tie into the Sirius documentary. It might even tie into Freeman's theory that these elite bloodlines are cloning people with the DNA from these ancient mummies. But anyway, uh, reports also state that they located 37 other pyramids that exist on the Crimean Peninsula that are said to have been constructed at the same time, suggesting that a previous civilization may have been wiped out by a massive meteor impact, as some scientists have always speculated. It has also been reported that three of the structures are giving off very specific frequencies. In fact, Forum reported back in July 2006, we found extremely strong formations which include ancient protein, liquid glass, gravel, and much more. It's clearly a man-made pyramid, and it does radiate specific energies at certain periods. They don't really elaborate on that, 
on what exactly that means, but that's kind of in line with Michael Tellinger's talks about these weird rings in, I want to say, Africa that he's found, these weird rings of stone that emit some type of frequencies. Adam's calendar. Yeah, that's what he, that's what it's talked about. Um, Well, then shockingly, last Sunday, it was reported by MSN that a UFO was spotted over the Ukraine peninsula of Crimea as well. So, you know, is this all related? This also ties into the theory that UFOs pop up during times of superpower conflict because they don't want us to fucking kill ourselves. Um, Real interesting. Real interesting that Crimea. It is real interesting, and some people have claimed that, oh, isn't this a broader plot where Putin is just playing the bad guy and he's working his way into World War III? But I feel like, for sure, we had our close calls with World War III, whatever you want to call it, it basically Israel instigating a a war, drawing in all these different factions. But uh, they tried to do it in Iran, and it kind of didn't really happen. They tried to start something with Libya with Syria it just has not really come to a head and then they tried to instigate or somebody tried to instigate some shenanigans in the Ukraine but Russia I feel like was very disciplined very totally within their rights and the US were the only ones who called for sanctions and thought that like this was some terrible thing but in the whole geopolitical scale we have no allies france germany the uk nobody said that russia deserves sanctions for this so it's like nobody was really admitting russia did anything wrong and then you get what the people want oh the people the majority want to just join russia so you start to feel like well what's what really happened here who's really at fault and the media tried really hard with all this cold war propaganda bullshit that they're re-merging putting it back on the screen but it just didn't really happen i just don't really feel like people in the u.s view russia as a big threat i don't feel like putin is trying to drive towards war i actually think he's trying to drive towards civility and stability and i don't know if you read benjamin fulford of course there's this alliance with between russia and china primarily and others a whole list of others who basically don't want Zionist bankers to control the world forever and ever with debt money. And so uh, it seems to be a conflict between Russia, perhaps others, against perhaps the banking cartels and their puppet governments, which are like the U.S. military a lot of times and Israel, of course. Right. And it is tough to know. I mean, there's a tendency to... Well, there's a couple tendencies. There's one to think that we are the good guys just because we live here, you know, patriotism and all that. But once you see through that, there's still an inclination to think good, good guy, bad guy. And then it's like, well, if we're the bad guys, then they're the good guys. But not necessarily. People who have amassed this much power have done some nefarious things. I'm just convinced of that. So, I mean, we're really talking about a play between the Crips and the Bloods. They're probably both criminals. That's a very nuanced point. And that's, again, something that the people who I talk to who don't know anything about what's really going on with Crimea, what's really going on, they just don't want to, they just want to look the other way. And speaking of looking the other way, everybody's paying attention to the missing flight. And 
I have an inclination that it's a distraction story. There was a conspiracy about four out of the five patent holders on this certain patent being on the plane and that the fifth one happens to be a member of the Rothschild family. But then a few days later, I saw more articles circulating that that was a hoax. But again, the way the world of journalism is infected with disinfo, it makes it hard to tell if the initial story was true or if the debunking was true. And the truth is just so far removed for us that it wouldn't surprise me. People will say, oh, well, two of those names aren't on the official record of who's on the plane. Okay, we do not think a member of the global elite could take those names off the record if they so wanted. It looks to me like two people with fake passports are on the plane. So how the fuck do you even know who's on that plane? If there even is a plane, who knows? We look, could be looking at a wag the dog situation. It's, it's just weird. Well, yeah. Once they all start, all the news networks start focusing on a particular story and they're like talking about it all the time and like getting the specs and the graphics out and all these charts and bullshit. It just is like, what are we talking about here? But I, I don't know anything about the story, except that every time I think about it, I just think about the electronic fog from the Bermuda Triangle episode. Yeah, man. I'm like, it, the fucking plane got in some electronic fog and went through a warp hole. Right. And it's back there building the pyramids that they're now discovering in Crimea on a different timeline. <laughs> that's, that's how it all ties together. I mean, it seems clear as day to me. I don't know what everybody else is talking about. With that said, I think our guest is ready. Let me play our spot for the money bomb so any new listeners know what we do here we've had a pretty big jump in the pool it's looking like we're near four hundred dollars at this point with about five days left to go so please donate if you can it's going to be the hundredth episode and my birthday so i'd like it to be a blowout there's uh, also an amazon wish list up on the hiresidechats.com if anyone wants to get me a b-day present of course i don't expect any but some listeners have asked if they could give me something directly without having to give into the money bomb and i said no because there really isn't i'm not i don't separate donations that way so this really is the only way and it's all stuff for my personal health and equipment to make the show better. That's really all I want in life. So check that out if you're that nice. With that said, we're going to be on the other side with the great and amazing Alex Bolin. Hey, people, I got to take a second to tell you about something we do around here called the THC Money Bomb. What I do is every five episodes, I total up the donations I've gotten in that period of time. And half keeps me and the show going. I take the other half and I gift that back to a random listener. So far, we're hitting about 500 each round and I couldn't be happier about it. So consider throwing in five or ten bucks. It's cheaper than a hand at the blackjack table with better odds than a scratch-off ticket. Plus, you know half supports the show you like and at the very least, half will go to a like-minded person who could probably use a nice surprise in these troubled times. When you make a donation, I can see your email address and that's how I pick the winner. But to keep things kosher, you can also get in the pool by sending your info on a postcard to me, Greg Carlwood, P.O. Box 635223, San Diego, California, 92163. I got no subscription fees here, no paid archives, no paid bonus shows, and I want to keep it that way on principle. But I'm not a millionaire of the podcast on the side. This is it for me. And I'm the only one I know who's trying to help the people out as well. That's my man. So help me help you. If you want to play along, go to thehiresidechats.com slash donate and get in the game. Dollars, bitcoins, it's all good to me. And that's what we call the THC Money Bomb. Boom. All 
All right, folks, we know that secret societies, underground orders, Hollywood, and even the goddamn Parker Brothers have taken an interest in the unseen forces behind occult magic and rituals, whether it be conjuring of long-established archetypes, the use of ancient symbols and talismans, fortune-telling, or even fortune-willing. I have often sought some of the answers of my own curiosities in these arts, and I wonder if they yield any real power or merely long-held superstitions. While our culture has carefully convinced the mainstream that these are not the droids we're looking for, I have to say that the examining of corporate logos, the power within secret societies, and the rumors of bizarre invocations behind the closed doors of some of the world's largest industries has me thinking I might be the one who's left in the dark. Well, not only is today's guest a real treat, he's the goddamn creme brulee of occult knowledge, and I'm hoping he can illuminate my ignorant mind on the real power of the dark arts. His name is Alex Bolin, host of the Alex Cast, author of two published works, a novel by the title of Periphery, and a collection of shorter works called The Void Sutras. He's been studying the occult and esoteric longer than I've been studying anything, and Kyle and I can't wait to hear from him. Alex, my man, how the hell are you? Yeah, I'm doing well. Thank you very much for the kind intro. <laughs> yeah, man. I'm psyched to have you here. These topics have always been of interest to me, but it's hard to separate the truth from fiction, even on the simple stuff these days. So areas of such complexity are filled with even more ignorance, bias, and gullibility. So I'm hoping you can help us cut through some of that. Uh, I suppose to start us out, give us a little history of this stuff. How did humanity stumble upon some of this esoteric information that we consider under the umbrella of a cult these days, because it doesn't seem to be that easy to sense on your own. Yeah, um, I I like to start from Egypt, which, I mean, I think pretty much all of ancient cultures would agree with me with that one. Mm-hmm. But uh, essentially, I mean, well, I could start this way. A cult just means hidden. That's what the word means. Right. A cult, yeah. So... Everything kind of traces back to the Egyptian mystery schools of the cult of Serapis and all those. I'm sure you've heard those terms before, the mm-hmm. bull cults and all that stuff. And essentially, it was just, you know, these hidden learnings that came out of Egypt. And it depends on which way you want to take it, whether you think there's a grain of truth in it or any truth in it, or it's just kind of, you know, mysticism or, you know, make-believe. But they figured out essentially early on these I guess uh, you want to call it a cult or esoteric to them. It was just kind of science and reality concepts, you know, uh, the sacred mathematics, geometry, you know, the idea of how to, you know, get your soul to the afterlife. These are all kind of the concept of their worldview. And because it was this hidden secret knowledge and some of it was quite useful, like the quote unquote sacred geometry. Well, yeah, the sacred geometry does have a lot of like mystical aspects to it. But that's also the same geometry that built the fucking pyramids. <laughs> so they we're dealing with kind of two sides to a very odd coin where we're dealing with simultaneously kind of the mystical nature of like these are the objects that can create the universe. You know, the, the Merkaba, the weird kind of tetrahedral shape that's supposed to be the, the footprint of God on the universe. But that's also the same thing that teaches you kind of levers and sleds to help you, you know, put a, put a pyramid together. So the knowledge is hidden on one way, like the, the recipe to Coca-Cola is hidden now because they know how to build a pyramid. So why share that knowledge? So you start getting this idea where it's a combination of hidden for practical reasons, like the Coca-Cola recipe, and then hidden for mystical reasons, because it's cool to have hidden stuff. You've got, you're the, you're the holders of this secret knowledge and other people see that and want to learn and you start adopting other people in and you get these kind of 
structured learning institutions almost. And that's the Egyptian mystery schools. And depending on which way you want to take it from there, that's where pretty much everything starts blossoming out. I mean, if you want to take a, if you want to take not too many liberties, you can explain all of the cults that exist now from there, from Freemasonry to the Illuminati to, I mean, everything like the, the new age movement, we can all go back to those kind of original thinkers those original people that came up with stuff back in, you know, ancient, ancient Egypt. And if you believe in the antediluvian civilization theory, maybe they were just holders of a knowledge from a previous generation, but right. Yeah. That gets super weird. So I just (laughs) stick with Egypt. (laughs) (laughs) It does get pretty weird. That's kind of what I was going to ask you about because I like the weird stuff, but uh, the lore seems to be that the information comes from Thoth or Hermes, which I guess are the, the same archetype just different names for the same person yeah hermes is just the greek name hermes i'm gonna say i murder the name every time it's hermes trismegistus it's a thrice great hermes he wrote the three great learning so essentially uh you know writing arithmetic and whatever the third one is right it it seems kind of like a parallel to the more modern mormon story of a guy who finds a couple of tablets and has all this information on i guess they're called um the emerald tablets. Yeah, it just seems a little weird. I mean, what what do we know about Thoth? Is he a real person? Was he considered to be uh, even human? No, he was. Uh, he's an Egyptian god. His his old name is Dehuti. Um, I'm again horribly pronouncing it, but Thoth is like the worst mispronunciation ever. Like, so the Egyptian name is uh, Dehuti, which is like D W Ahuti, and when it goes to Greek, it somehow becomes Tahuti, and then becomes Tahut. And then becomes Thoth, which is, I know it sounds weird, but linguistically, you can look at it and trace it down. I mean, I can't, but I can (laughs) see people with PhDs in their name tell me that that's a legitimate thing to do. Yeah. And um, he was, he's a, he's the God of uh, learning and writing and uh, architecture and all the good, smart stuff. He's, um, he's a, uh, he's a God. He either has a head of like an Ibis, I think it's Ibis, whatever you say, the you ever see those plague doctor masks? That's what those head look like. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Or he's got a head of a uh, of of a monkey or whatever the ape they have around there. He's got two different forms. But yeah, he's a god. And I don't think he's one of those gods that's supposed to be based on a real person. I think he's just purely a god construct. He's not like a, uh, you know, like one of those gods that like, oh, well, he used to rule in the ancient, ancient times. Mm-hmm. I think he's one of those dudes that's supposed to be just purely from the heavens showed up, gave us some stuff, not, not uh, myth built on top of an actual person. Right. See, that's what's interesting to me. Like I love all those ancient myths and the old stories of uh, secret human history extending far beyond what's conventional, but it is really tough to know, or I mean, I'll probably never know if, or if there's any truth to any of it or what's believable. I mean, it all seems like it could be, Made up, but then at the same time, what's interesting about the the Thoth story, as opposed to say Jesus, is that there's actual information, like you know the sacred geometry, actual knowledge given. So here's a, a group of people who seem to have knowledge that surpassed the people around them, and they claim that it came from here. So it seems a little odd because there that almost backs up the fact that it could have really came from some other type of being. Yeah, it's interesting. Or the other, you know, the other side is whether that, you know, that Atlantean Lemurian Moo antediluvian 
old school, you know, really old human thing that somehow Egypt was the recipient of their knowledge. So it's not it's not anything kind of uh, extraterrestrial or anything like that. It's just purely in the same way that the occult likes to kind of hide where they get stuff. They like to mythologize things. Mm -hmm. If they were the recipients of this old knowledge, they hit it well and it became part of it became myth instead of being just we have memory of it like um um, i'm stressing to remember who it was but one of the um one of the greeks came over and uh who's the guy that did geometry in in greece oh he's the guy who studied in the ancient mystery schools and came back yeah like the the dude that invented geometry essentially what's his name Pythagoras? pythagoras pythagoras thank you he says he talked to one of the priests there And the priest essentially said, you know, laughed at him saying, like, you don't know shit about human history. Like you Greeks, you know, you don't know what you're talking about. And that he had the priest said he has all the records of this civilization that came before them. And I, you know, who knows how true the story is, but it is a story that gets passed down that Pythagoras was told us that, you know, the priest there who I I don't know his name. I don't know if I ever knew his name, but his name is recorded somewhere. uh, the, The priest's name that he said Flat out, we are the receivers of old knowledge. There was a civilization before us, and that's where we get this from. Yeah, man. I actually just did a show a few episodes back with a guy named Rand Flemoth, and he kind of paralleled that story with Plato, that Plato got his Atlantis information from talking to some uh, person who was involved in a religious institution who basically laughed at him and said, Plato, you don't know shit. Let me let me break this down for you. Or I think there was another person involved. It was a little bit of telephone. But that's how he came to get that information in a, in a parallel way. So it's kind of interesting. Yeah, those are those. I, I know both those stories and who knows how much they kind of overlap with each other and, you know, kind of interplay with each other. Yeah, that's um, the one you're referencing is Plato's grandfather that told him about Atlantis in the first place. And his grandfather spoke to a priest in in um, in Egypt and got the same story. The one that I heard originally was Pythagoras. But again, it's one of those things where when you're so far removed, it is like a game of telephone. That could be just the same story and it just gets mutated mm-hmm. depending on who's the teller and who's Agreed. the receiver. There's another interesting facet about Plato because he wrote a uh, dialogue that Socrates had where basically Socrates is demonstrating that this slave boy is able to do geometry. He's essentially teaching him geometry just by asking simple things, just asking him simple questions. And the ultimate point of this dialogue is Socrates has this theory that essentially all learning is just remembering, that this boy knew how to do this. He just, It just needed to be coaxed out of him. So this is really similar to ancient knowledge somehow being passed on to us too that the whole concept of hermes or thoth that this was laying around waiting for us to come around to it so like us learning it is kind of us inheriting it or us remembering it so it does ring of something prior but once you get into how the gods are really like personifications of motivating powers or archetypal beings that apply like you can be thoth like in your life then it gets a lot more interesting. Yeah, there's a the Platonic ideas, uh, he called it forms. So like ideas were just forms that could be almost kind of as plucked from a tree. So there are pre-existing things that could be grabbed and then brought brought into existence. So like um, the, the, the iPhone existed in ancient Greece. It's just there was no way to pluck that from, you know, from 
whatever. You know, there's no way to get that form down. But which is interesting because this is one of those things, again, a worldwide kind of belief that that's very related to that kind of Akashic Records kind of thing that, that those Hindu, you know, Indian beliefs of that essentially there is this field of knowledge that everything's available through. And if you can kind of attenuate yourself to it, you can get into that field and essentially grab any knowledge you want, which changes it from actually literal transmission of knowledge from a previous culture to all knowledge already exists. And it takes the enlightened people to get to the knowledge, which is very much the occult tradition or the, the kind of uh, initiatory right tradition is, and really just any spiritual tradition is unburdening yourself enough so that you be- become, you know, in Buddhism, it's a bodhisattva where you, you essentially become like a Buddha, but then you stay on the earth to help people. The Hinduism has the same thing where if you kind of free yourself from the cycle of birth and re- birth and rebirth, moksha, you can get out of that and kind of essentially become like this ascended master to use a new age term. And these, these ideas keep, you know, recycling in on themselves across history. So, who knows if it's true? And on the other side, you can look at it as psychology. It's the union subconscious is that what we're connecting to is just simply the way our brains are formed. And we, because of the, we're pattern makers, we tend to make similar patterns because our brains are so similar to each other's. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the idea that we're, that the knowledge is there kind of floating in the ether for us to pluck out it kind of goes in line with a lot of other things. I mean, it manifests today sort of in artists who talk about the muse. They say when they get out of their, their own way, the, the creativity is inspired and hits them like, you know, hits them like fire and they don't know where it came from. And that kind of is in line with the same thing. I mean, maybe that opens you up in, in some form or some fashion to being a conduit for some of this information out of the ether. Who knows? Yeah, that's the that's the stuff that I love about kind of the occult tradition is whether you want to do uh, like Ram Dass has the book Be Here Now, which is kind of what you're referencing, that Zen tradition of just being in the moment. And that's what I like about tarot. That's what I like about kind of like I do kind of I, I do chaos magic. Like I like the ritual of it to kind of or at least a free form ritualization of it to get to kind of force you to get out of your way. Like it's almost like seeing a forcing a shiny object at the side of your vision. So you go, ooh, something shiny. And you're not thinking directly on the topic. Hmm. See, that's interesting because I, I have that problem all the time. Like I have I can't concentrate to meditate. Uh, sometimes I sit down to write and I just can't get off social media. I just get distracted. I'm 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 a mess, man. I'm a real mess. But oh, I, I hear you. That's I mean, <laughs> trust. I just admitted being a chaos magician. Like I, I know. Right. Like I, I, <clears throat> I try to find anything to get myself into that state. That you know, the flow state or the zone or whatever you want to call it. But whether or not that's psychological or spiritual, whether you're, you know, downloading from some source consciousness, akashic field, something, or you've just kind of gotten into your actual subconscious and you've kind of maximize the way your brain can work. I don't particularly care either way. Like <laughs> if I have to say a prayer to some arcane God and it gets me to write, you know, a thousand words that day, I don't care if the God's listening or just my brain got tricked into thinking something. Right. Who cares if the, it's a placebo effect? Yeah. But, the results happened. So beautiful. I'll wipe my hands and keep walking. <laughs> exactly. I'm with you on that, but give me some of those tricks that you've learned from chaos magic to help you, get there because I think that that's uh, such a key 
accomplishment really for getting into some of this stuff and letting your creativity flow. It's pretty important. And I have such a problem with it. I'm sure there's audience members who do as well. What are some of those tricks you've learned from chaos magic? Well, um, it's more just the, the entire concept of chaos magic of intention over reality. And this goes actually before chaos magic as well, but that what you're doing is kind of, I don't want to say, I don't, I hate using such like kind of masculine forceful language because I don't view it that way, but it is kind of imposing your will on the universe is some of the phrases people use. I don't mm-hmm. like that. I, th- the thing is you're a universe creator. Like we're all experiencing the universe from our own completely flawed machine and we're in control of this machine. So we can control the reality that we perceive via whatever magical uses you find magical feeling, you know? So if you think you need a full druidic robe and candles or whatever, if that works for you, it works. And chaos magic kind of allows for that. And so if you can convince yourself, like, like chaos magic, one of the main things is sigil making, which I don't know if you've ever talked to a chaos magician on the show, but, uh, I mean, essentially, chaos magic goes. It it starts from this guy called uh, uh, Osman Spare in uh, probably about 1900. He's about the same era as Crowley, and um, he's a mystical artist and uh, writer and thinker and whatever. And uh, so he's around, and he comes up with the idea of sigil work. So essentially, what you do is write down your intention on a piece of paper. You say. Um, I am a very good writer. You write that down and you focus on it. You, you will that sentence into being, and then using various tricks, a lot of people like you, you know, you erase every letter that's repeating. You erase all the vowels or some form to get it smaller. And then you tend essentially you take those letters and kind of make a magical symbol out of it. Like you, you know, you put the Y and the F on top of each other and then make a circle for the C and, kind of form an actual, you know, a talisman. And the idea is that you're focusing on it and you're imbuing it with, you know, either magical or psychological power. And the act of this literally changes the universe to be, I am now a better writer by making the sigil work, you know, doing the sigil work. So it's interesting. So, but whether or not that's psychological or actual magical, again, for me, I don't care because it doesn't matter. Like it's, that's just because I'm the creator of my universe, it doesn't matter if it's magical or if it's psychological, I'm still the brain viewing the universe. So whatever result is the result, you know? Right. That's interesting because I guess you're embedding your intent. I wonder if that's the modality of some of these corporations, some of these huge corporations that have strange esoteric symbolism in their corporate logos. I wonder if they operate in the same way if they manifest their intent onto this ancient symbol and it's been modernized and hidden and then thus they have a successful corporation <laughs> i don't know well absolutely yeah. because when they use the symbol they use the exact same symbol all the time across the board that symbol means coca-cola or whatever it is so the repetition the ritualization of this specific symbol it's not just like they're saying they're advertising all sorts of different ways. No, they choose one symbol like the uh, BMW or Audi four rings or whatever it happens to be, the L for Lexus. And then 
every time you see that, it triggers Lexus. So, and every time that that successfully happens, they've like entrained more and more people to what this symbol means, thus empowering the sigil further. And that's kind of the whole thing. It is imbued with all this energy and all these thoughts that people have about it. It kind of triggers that in you when you see the Lexus symbol because everybody else has all these preconceived notions about the Lexus symbol. Hmm. Yeah, certainly. Yeah, that's a, a lot of people take it that way, whether or not it's conscious or unconscious. If you look on the negative side, if you look, that's why Hitler took the the swastika. I mean, that was an ancient, you know, Eastern symbol right. for you know eternity and luck and whatever. What he did was flip it and use it as his own, but it's because it's already had a thousand years of power imbued into it. And, you know, it's, it's so you can't distance yourself from it because we all, you know, we're all aware of what happened in World War II. But if you look at that symbol, like if you look at Swanson, that that is a powerful symbol. Like it's, it's fucking vibrating with something, you know, it is a, it's, you know, it's could be psychological, it could be magical, but I mean, that is imbued with a significant amount of power in this case, you know, unfortunately it's a negative power, but Hitler and his group, they were all occult magicians. I mean, they're the whole lot of them were lousy with uh, people doing weird ritual work. And right there, it's, they found the sigil and imbued it with power and it's super successful. I mean, they lost obviously, but the imbuing that symbol with power is, you know, successful. Right. It is weird to see the, to ascribe the rise of power to the symbol because the symbol, when we think Nazi, that's like the first thing that comes to mind. And I actually went to uh, um, one of those out in the desert kind of festival things and they had a meditation area. And in that area was filled with swastikas. And I, I was like, man, you know, the damage is done, guys. You got to give this one up because it's too embedded with negativity at this point. <laughs> but it is interesting because the Nazis seem to have lost on the surface. But Project Paperclip brought all the major players into the United States, into our covert organization. So I'm wondering sometimes if they didn't really, quote unquote, lose or maybe it's not quite so simple as as a, just a, just a loss, you know. That is. I don't know if you saw recently those documents that came out that report that Hitler made it to Argentina and the government was aware of this. Yes. Um, so, I mean, that whole Project Paperclip thing, one, yeah, that's pretty obvious. Like, we split the we split the scientists down the middle with Russia and the next thing you know, we have a space race. Like, yeah, that's there's something going on there that, yeah, that whole, well, did they lose thing does get into the question. But then when we find out Hitler wasn't even dead. Right. Yeah, like, oh, well, maybe... Maybe there is a little bit more to this. It almost seems like they had nowhere else to go. You know, it almost seemed like an exit strategy because their power was so overt. If there was the only way to cover it back up is to go dark. History is definitely rewritten by the winners and people who want to keep things secret. And the United States would definitely fall into the category of wanting to keep some secrets. Yeah, I I don't know how much you know about this, but I was just going to kind of chime in about the occult being so involved with um, what the Nazis were doing, as you said, but also with the rocket program post, you know, Project Paperclip with uh, Jack Parsons, the guy who designed the rocketry. Like yeah, the guy behind uh, JPL, the, yeah. Yeah, it had to do with the pentagram shape specifically, and he was known to read the Hymn of Pan and be uh, part of the OTO and very interested in Crowleyan ideas. Yeah, he was how that ties in with all the space project stuff. That's a real interesting connection to me. Yeah, he was friends with Crowley. Like they knew each other. They were they have correspondences that you can look at. 
it's there. I mean, the name of the early programs like Gemini and um, there's another Gemini is the twins, of course, um, which has a bunch of, you know, kind of ritual cult significance. Um, not, not one that I can kind of go into off the top of my head, but essentially the idea of duality and it's pretty obvious. The Apollo is the, you know, the God Apollo and, you know, from the Greek mythos, it's a lot of the references in the naming system have occult significance. And then if you look at the iconography for each mission, they're just chock full of, of occult symbols. Like you see like the rising star, uh, the pentagram thing. I, I forget what it was, but yeah, I remember there is a pentagram like interspersed with the early JPL stuff. I can't remember what it is off the top of my head, but if you look at any of those early pictures, they're all like retelling of like, there's one that's like the, uh, you can see the, the story of Prometheus on one of their, on one of their, patches on the side of an astronaut's you know suit you know you see this guy grabbing the fire and like you know kind of giving the middle finger to the gods with it <laughs> which is like well what the hell do you do why what is this doing on a a government funded space program you know this is it is really strange i mean this isn't one of those we're just we're trying to find a conspiracy where one doesn't exist like like jack parsons was an occultist these are occult symbols that's that's a tough one to shake off. You know, that's a that's a legit thing. I'm with you, man. I mean, it, we can look at some of these successful organizations and see that they had roots in, in the occult in some way. But yet, when I meet people in my waking life, usually, that are into mysticism or magic, say at a conference, they seem to be the most gullible or awkward, usually lonely and broke people that are barely keeping things together and it makes me doubt that there's any real power there because it doesn't seem to be helping them. Now, if I found out Mark Zuckerberg or LeBron James or George Clooney has been practicing occultists, then I'd be like, well, fuck, I guess I should get my shit together there. You know, it's like it's really tough to figure out. Like when I see organizations, they seem to be using it and they're successful. But yet individuals today, I don't know, they seem to be it doesn't seem to be helping them all that much in life. Can you speak to that at all? Yeah, I mean, on some stuff, sure. Uh, I, I mean, if you look at Bohemian Grove, you know, that, that place in California where they worship Moloch, well, those are practicing occultists and those are presidents and <laughs> yeah. the biggest, like, pop stars ever, you know? So, right there. Um, uh, I'm, I'm really bad at modern music, but um, who's the 99 Problems guy? Jay-Z? Oh, Jay-Z, yeah. Jay-Z is, he's throwing up the Illuminati eye, like, all of his, they, he calls himself Hova for Jehovah. Like he's, he's, he drops ridiculous references to, to Gnostic maths. Like he's, he's dropping occult symbolism in, on his shirts, on his album covers. So obviously, well, I shouldn't say obviously, but it seems to me that he's some form of practicing occultist or at least knows how to use the symbolism of occultism to get across his message. And fr- from what I've heard, and I know almost nothing about modern music, but he seems to be rather popular and I, very wealthy. So there's an example. <laughs> yeah, it's just weird. Are, are, are people on an individual level, like maybe the, like, for example, I subscribe to the subreddit occult and I check out what they're doing every so often. And they don't seem to be, it doesn't seem to be helping them or improving their life. And I'm curious because... And some it does. So is are they just not doing it right? I guess it's tough to know unless you're sitting there watching them. Well, you're also the idea is you're not really supposed to talk about it, too. There's a, that aspect of if you get something from these works, 
it's not like you're supposed to dance around the street saying it worked, it worked. Here's my secret. Like, cause that kind of breaks the spell. It's, it's almost on the psychological level. It's, it's a equivalent to when your friend tells you he's writing a novel and that just means 99% that he's never finishing that book, <laughs> you know? And I think magical works are the same way that I think the more people talk about it and I'll even throw myself into this and I, I kind of, I, I'm kind of not forced into it, but I do a podcast. So, uh, it's, it's kind of tough for me not to talk about everything cause I need something to talk about. Mm-hmm. But, uh, a lot of, a lot of magicians don't talk about it because it's just kind of like part of the, part of the mysticism of it. You know, it's, it's, it breaks the spell to say, um, you know, my magical works worked. Okay. You know, put it this way. I made a, um, I made a, uh, a luck sigil about two months ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, cause I just didn't, I basically had no money and I did a sigil. Like I really could use some luck. And I put it in my wallet, and that night I won 600 bucks at Kino at the bar. Damn. No. That, that's yeah. obviously could be confirmation bias. Right. Because it's the one time it worked, it's the time I remember. I've forgotten all the other times it didn't work, you know, hypothetically. Mm-hmm. But that's not something, that's the first time I've said that to anybody. But I'm just saying, but as an example, that's two months I didn't say anything because, I don't know, it's just kind of part of it is that you don't say it. So... I think the people you hear talking about are the ones that it's not working for because they're talking about it or, you know, vice versa. Right. I agree. There, there seems to be a trickster element in play. It's, it's weird, man. So tell me about a little more of your experiences and experiments in this realm of study. I mean, have you successfully invoked any entities or tapped into some seemingly supernatural energies or anything like that that really confirmed for you that there's some power behind this? Outside of the example you just gave. Uh, yes and no. Uh, I don't do the invocation of stuff because, I mean, it's kind of hard to word, but essentially, I like the freeform nature of kind of chaos magic, chaos work of, I like kind of the brute force, like psychic style of, of, of magical practice. Um, I like being able to just kind of impose my will not in a again i don't i don't mean impose but i like kind of inventing my reality is the way that i like to work not in a rapey way yeah exactly which is that's why i hate using that term because it is like i'm raping the universe like no i mean i'm viewing the universe with rose-colored glasses you know Mm -hmm. um but so invoking something to me kind of i don't know there's like a line that i don't want to cross on a certain way where it's Invoking something kind of almost calls it into being, which means that I have to do like a ton more study to find all the aspects of the thing that I'm trying to call into being. And then then you get stuck in this kind of causal loop of the next thing you know, you have to read 40 something books to get one, you know, summoning of something. Mm -hmm. And I mean, frankly, I have other things to do. Like I don't. So I just don't mess with that because of the, the amount of like kind of study that's involved with it. But since I've been doing more kind of occult weird things. I talked about this on, on my show. I don't know if you listen to that one, but I had a couple instances where, I mean, to put it bluntly, like some kind of Egyptian thing talked to me while I was meditating. Yeah, I actually did listen to that. I was hoping you would tell us a little bit about that. I think the audience and Kyle would find it pretty interesting. Yeah, this is, <clears throat> so I, I was, uh, when I was writing the, the first book, The Void Sutras, uh, take a shot, people in the audience. Um, so I was writing The Void Sutras and 
I was trying to just kind of get something creative going. So I was doing this thing like automatic drawing, essentially. It's kind of like automatic writing, but I was just, you know, put a pen down and just kind of space out and just draw what I draw. And I was just drawing random crap. And uh, you can find the picture of it. If you find it's actually episode 146. So if you go to alexcast.com, look at 146. I, I think I put the picture there. If not, I'll re-upload it. But uh, so I drew this picture and it's kind of an Egyptian motif and it's, you know, just kind of, I'm not a good artist, but it's just, you know, like a kind of hippo looking guy standing in a boat and there's a little Prometheus dude holding some fire and they're in a ship and it's all well and good. And there, there's letters above it that says Merkaba, which anybody that's into the sacred geometries is aware of a Merkaba. Well, I wasn't. I'd never heard that word before. In fact, I just looked at it and said, oh, look, syllables and just left the drawing in my sketchbook until probably a year or two later, I was watching, um, I think I was watching the spirit science, a really fun YouTube Interesting series. series. Yeah. I've talked to them yeah. before on the show. Interesting. Yeah. They're fun. Um, really good, like surface level, not surface level, really good introduction to a lot of this weird stuff, mm. but they did the sacred geometries and they said, uh, they were talking about the Merkaba and I was like, like, Oh, that thing, like uh, tetrahedron. And they're showing the, uh, like how it lines up to like, uh, you know, like how the proportions of man and how it's the sacred proportions and all this stuff. And in the back of my head, I'm like, why does that word sound familiar to me? And just something clicked. I'm like, wait a fucking second. So I essentially gashed my sketchbook. I'm like, wait, I wrote that word down before I knew that word. Like it's in my book. Like this is proof. Like I wrote a word down before I knew it. <laughs> you remembered it from the ether. Yeah. Like, which is weird. And, in my kind of more sciencey brain, I, I went, okay, well, it's possible I had heard this before. I don't know how, because I honestly, the sacred geometry, like, I didn't realize how kind of sacred the sacred geometry was. I just thought it was a Pythagoras thing, whereas they were just kind of hiding the secrets of, you know, how to figure out the hypotenuse. So I never bothered to look into it. So once I found out it was actual, like, kind of sacred, I was like, oh, that's what they mean? Oh, cool. Now I have to research it. So I can't imagine that I'd run into that word before. So, but it was still, you know, I could write it off. But, uh, uh, in October I was trying to, I experiment a lot with trying to essentially get out of my body, like astral projection or, you know, lucid dreaming and travel and stuff like that to mixed results. Uh, I've lucid dreamed a whole bunch of times. I can never do it on like purpose all that well, you know, it's just kind of that same thing, just kind of accidentally you're in a dream and you go, Oh shit, I'm dreaming. And it's fun. But, uh, I was really trying to figure out how to get in my body in a meditative state. So I had uh, my good studio headphones on and I had like those uh, binaural beats, you know, that's supposed to change your brain chemistry and get you, you know, so I was trying to get really deep. I, uh, you know, theoretically, if there's no law enforcement listening, I may have had an edible something. And um, I got super deep. Like I was really really like in some kind of altered meditative state and not i don't mean altered state because of any kind of drug interaction i just i point that out because again i like to be fair you know i believe in the warts and all theory so it's possible i heard merkaba before and it's possible i just had a strong dose and invented something i don't think that's true but i like to put it out there but uh so i'm super deep and i see these two kind of uh faces uh, kind of through the darkness um not really almost like a coalescent shape. I, I equated it to if you ever saw the electric company, that old show where they had the two faces and one said like, um, hell. And the other one said, Oh, hello. 
Um, if you're old, you know what I'm talking about. But it's kind of that look. And there's two things. And they start kind of not talking to me, but transmitting knowledge almost. And uh, I I essentially gone there to kind of like ask for help because, you know, I, I in my life have dealt with like severe depression and I was trying to figure out like a way out. And that's what I think most spiritual practices try to, you know, improve yourself, get better or whatever. And I guess somebody heard me or my subconscious heard me because this thing uh, appeared to me, these two things. And one didn't name itself. And the other one um, kind of made herself known as being Sekhmet, uh, which I ended up having to look up, which is an Egyptian goddess, which that one I'm not giving any kind of weirdness to. I'm pretty sure I knew that name. I just it didn't ring familiar at the time. I was also deep in a meditative state, so I wasn't trying to think of it. But um, she essentially said like, oh, you know, it's it's going to get better. You know, it's 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 coming soon. You know, the work you've been doing, you're going to get some kind of dividends. And um, I was like, oh, you know, that's cool. You know, and it's hard to word because it's not you know, this is not a verbal conversation that's happening. This is a exchange of some kind of ideas, platonic forms. Um, and uh, I essentially kind of asked in there's no kind of way to word it as politely as I did in my kind of thought form of look, I've been trying a lot of stuff for like a really long time. Could you maybe give me some proof? Like if you could, like, I know I'm asking a lot, but like, seriously, I've, I've been carrying a big weight, like just a, just the smallest little bit of evidence. And she essentially said, yeah, you know, I can do that. So, um, essentially the thing that aware, you know, made itself aware, Sekhmet said, you know, in three or 11 months, you know, you will receive some kind of deliverance from this. So I said, cool. And the proof is you'll meet somebody tonight called Tracy. And, like, oh, 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 that's weird, but okay. And the vibe I got was not so much that Tracy had anything to do with my life. It was just like, it, it's almost, um, you will see a black cat walk across your path mm-hmm. or something. Just a, a nod. Yeah. You'll see a cool looking uh, rock on the, on the corner. So, uh, I went to, uh, after, you know, so I finished meditating, you know, whatever. And, um, I wrote down, I'll meet Tracy on my little, you know, my little notebook that I keep. And so I go to the bar that I like to hang out at um, later that night. And I was telling my friend about it. And I noticed this girl there playing pinball and not particularly attractive. Nothing, nothing noticeable about her. It was just a regular chick. And for some reason, she just kept sticking my head. And I'm like, she seemed familiar. Like, it's almost like that's the girl that kind of segment gave me the nod to. So I was like, but it wasn't so much that. It was just still, it was just a weird thing. So anyway, she goes up and orders a drink and I'm friends with the bartender. So I was like, Hey, Jess, just weird question. You see that girl that's now back at the pinball table? They just ordered, she's like, yeah, what's her name? And and she goes, oh, oh, it's Tracy. What the? Hmm. So, it's like, <laughs> again, I wrote this down. Like, so I freak it, not freak out, but I was like, you have no idea how fucking weird this is. And I was like, I'll sit here. Someone drive to my house. I'll give you my keys. You can pick up that piece of paper. It says Tracy on it. There's no way for me to fake this. And of course, we didn't do that because... You know, that's obviously not proof, but it was still it was really exciting. And uh, it was, again, is one of those things where it's like it's hard for me even because I can explain most things I try to I, I want to get a psychological explanation along with a mystical one because, you know, I have to live in reality. I have to pay taxes, so I don't want to go completely nuts. But this is one of those things where it's I don't know how to explain it just as psychology. Like that's a pretty straightforward I asked for proof from something that's outside of my ken. It provided proof. And 
within hours it was delivered. It's hard for me to find a way to get that to be just subconscious, you know? Yeah, man. I thought that story was really interesting. It's just weird. I mean, I know a lot of people get those little stories of personal validation that don't really translate or have much meaning to other people. It seems to be a very personal experience and there's really no way around that. But what advantage does that give someone in life, you know, to to be familiar with all this occult knowledge, to speak to it and then to get some validation that it's there? It's like, great, it's acknowledged, but how does that improve one's life? Because it takes a lot of time and dedication to really understand the occult. You would think that there would be a a greater payoff. Well, for me, that's, on a personal level, that's one of the better payoffs I can ask for, is my great concern, and and I mean this on a purely flawed human level, uh, I was raised Catholic, so I have huge amounts of guilt in me. (laughs) And my big thing is, the 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 fight between as i refer to the entropic meat sack and being something beyond just you know flesh that dies and consciousness snaps and goes away i can't imagine a universe that's more unfair and horrible than one in which we just when the lights turn out it's out and nothing happens anymore like mm. you know the the newtonian just when we die we die there's nothing else it's literally to me the worst thing i can picture Ever like it's that's the most horrible ever. But also, because I mean, I come from kind of a sciencey background, not that we've really touched on it or that we should because I've insulted science a million times. But uh, <laughs> I I can that's the one that makes sense. Like, really, my logical brain says, well, yeah, you just die and it's over. There's you know, you don't see ghosts of hard drives floating in front of you. Why would you expect there to be some immortal part of you? And that's my great fight. And I really, that, that messes with me on a deep level. So to have something that I, that I can't explain on a, that I can't write it off with some kind of ready science is about the best thing I can ask for. I mean, what would be better is to be 100% convinced, but I think that would go against kind of who I am. I don't think that would sit in my psyche very well, but having them kind of tip the scale towards the Hey, there's probably something else going on here. That's that's a really that's that's a gift. I mean, that's really cool of whatever it is that talked to me. That's a really cool thing that it did. So, as far as like the reward for all the kind of work and study, I'll I'll take it. I think that's a cool reward for me. I can see why somebody else would be like, "Oh, this is terrible. This is, you know, this is getting a sticker in your cracker jacks. Like this is what a boring thing, but for me, that's what I needed, you know? That's fair. I mean, like I said, again, these things, it's its kind of, it doesn't translate beyond the personal experience. I mean, you can tell me and I'm like, oh, that's cool. But you really got to be there. You really got to feel it. And and clearly you have. I mean, for the skeptics out there, because we are going to do this tarot reading. And I'm excited about it. I'm, you know, I'm very open-minded about all this stuff. I just haven't had a personal validation or a personal experience. So to me, it's all, it's still kind of removed from me. But, um, you know, if there are people out there who are cynical, but yet kind of open-minded, and they wanted to dabble in ritual or magic to get some type of validation that there is some power to it, is there any certain ritual or any steps that you would recommend someone take where they could most likely extract that personal validation? 
Yeah, see, this is this is the really frustrating part of it is that no, because it's not what it's there for. <laughs> like, right. It's such an annoying thing. Like as a writer, the most annoying piece of advice is just write. That's the best advice. God, that advice sucks, but it's also the best advice you can get. For magic, it's, well, what's the magic that's the most, you know, you can get the quickest dividends, the one that you can see something is that's not magic. That's not what it's here for, you know? Like it's uh, supposed to be evasive, you know, it's purposely evasive. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. It's supposed to be evasive. It's like, like if you're trying to learn, you know, if you, if you put it into more of like something that kind of Western people understand a little better, like a lot of people meditate, it's there's no way to just go, well, how do I just get into a perfect meditative state tomorrow? There, that's probably a good analogy. Yeah, that you're right, you're right. The state of mind to get into these kind of magical kind of mind space isn't the state of mind that you're looking for direct causal kind of result from it, which is kind of frustrating, you know, like in my entire time, I've been doing like any kind of any kind of practice or any kind of like. I've been doing spirituality stuff for, you know, I've been meditating for, you know, decade and a half. Like I've been trying to do this stuff for a long time. Like I came from a Buddhist background. I've been doing this for quite a while. And I think the first time I've ever asked anybody, like anybody, I mean, like any kind of construct or like, you know, asked a God for help was the time that I said, Hey, could you give me some proof? Like, so not that I'm trying to like weigh, you know, whatever, 15 years of work against one question, but I don't know that you can get an answer when you, you know, the first year in, because you, you don't have the, you know, the the phrase is, uh, you don't have the eyes to see, you know, you're not, you haven't been initiated into the mysteries well enough to even know what you're looking at. Mm. So if you're, you know, if, if, you know, say you go into an Egyptian temple and some guy explains, you know, oh, well, that's a, that's a, that's a Ouijat and it means this, this, and this, you can hear it, but it doesn't mean anything to you. It just, these are, that's a description, but you've been initiated into it when you see that, well, then it carries the weight of the actual symbol and it means something to you. Mm-hmm. So it's the same thing, but with two different sets of eyes. It's, you know, for those who have eyes to see. So when you're there, you now have the ability to take in the information that, although it's kind of available before, you just didn't have the ability to see it in that way. This is uh, this is kind of the fundamental part of, of Periphery, the novel I wrote. Is, right. That's the idea of it is you... The surface level of the story is a guy kind of being initiated into this weird world of seeing the periphery, seeing this other world existing on top of the normal one. But he also wrote the book as an initiatory process that when you read the book the first time, it's a complete novel. It's there, completely there for you. It's I've been, I've been told it's quite good. When you read it again, you will be shocked at the amount of stuff that you didn't read the first time because you didn't have the eyes to see it. You didn't know what I was telling you. Like I initiated you into, you know, on a very There's layers to it. Yeah. On a very significant level. I initiated you into the process of the periphery that if you go back and read it a second time, I gave you the secret about two pages in. You just didn't know you're reading it because you didn't have the eyes to see. But now you have. And well, now you know what's going on. So now you know what's going on, that there's actually probably another layer happening. And it's just, you know, it's it's a metaphor for that initiatory process. Same as, you know freemasonry or reading tarots right well said man it's it's super interesting to me before we did this reading i wanted to ask you a little bit about how this stuff applies to some of the fringe ideas we hear going on backstage in hollywood i mean we hear that hollywood uses certain celebrities 
to embody or evoke certain Egyptian deities or archetypes. Like, for example, I've had this guy Freeman on the show. I'm a big fan of his work. He believes that Miley Cyrus is invoking Kali when she strokes her invisible hair and sticks out her tongue in every picture and every marketing campaign she's in. Or one that's more fascinating to me that I always cite is that Jim Carrey has been used in his career to represent Osiris as the green man in movies like The Mask or The Grinch and The Riddler and the Batman movies. He plays green in all of those. Also, apparently there's a tie-in in Bruce Almighty. He plays a man who gains the power of God. And there's a lot of 2K symbolism, Twin Peaks symbolism in his movies, which of course represents Eleven. And I mean, the threads keep going and the connections and symbols go on beyond that. But that's just an example. I mean, does this stuff mean any t- anything to you? Do you see a purpose to doing such a thing? Some stuff, yeah. Uh, I was I was actually just I was probably I was smiling like an idiot when you told me that Miley Cyrus thing. I'd not heard that, and absolutely, that's what she's doing. That's so there because I just said that that one picture of uh, of Callie with with her tongue out, and I was like, oh yeah, that's what she's doing. Like, oh, that's so there. Like, of course, that's it. Um, fun story. Uh, lead character in my book is named Callie. So hey. Um, Synchronicity. I, th- I think it's, I think it's there on a certain level. If it goes back to the kind of the union archetype that they're connecting to, then it's kind of natural that someone will fall into it. And I'm going much more on the Miley side because, well, I'll get to, I'll get to the Jim Carrey in a sec, but the, I think there's kind of archetypes that you can fall into readily and that we associate with it so that we can see it. So the reason that, that, that Kali became, the goddess that we know her as now, the re- because she embodied something that's kind of natural to us. So it, that in the way that this Miley Cyrus girl is doing the same thing. Now, maybe she saw a picture and is, you know, purposefully doing this. But I mean, in the end, it doesn't matter because it is invoking that image. So it's happening. Mm-hmm. So does that help her? Does it hinder? I mean, I can't imagine it hinders. So maybe the invocation is, she doesn't know she's doing it. You know, maybe that's just the way the archetype kind of reveals itself right. yet again. Or her, you know? her handlers might be pushing her in that direction. Yeah. I mean, it's very possible. Um, I certainly think it would, I certainly think a lot of people, a lot more people are into this sort of stuff than, than we realize. I used to be afraid to kind of not afraid, but I just didn't feel like telling people about kind of some of the spiritual and kind of occult work I was into. Cause I just didn't feel like dealing with, you know, those like the super kind of materialist scientist types that are just, you know, strident atheisty kind of people are just like, man, you're not really all that fun to talk to. So I just, you know, don't bother. Like, yes, I know your argument. Cool. It makes sense. But once I started to talk about it, my fears were completely wrong. It's like inevitably there's at least, you know, if you talk to a group of five people, one or two of them are going to be like, oh, yeah, you know, I own some crystals. I used to do some, you know, work that way or a lot of people are into that stuff. So. It's very possible that, you know, Miley Cyrus and those types are, as I was saying, Jay-Z apparently is. But the Jim Carrey stuff is maybe he's kind of leaning towards some of those roles for those reasons. But I think when you look at something for too long, uh, it's kind of like um, the McCarthy trials. You know, they kept looking for communists so long that they kept finding communists, even though they weren't there, but they found them. So... If you just keep looking for symbols, you're going to find them even when they might not be there. Great example of this, if, if you saw Room 237, the documentary that came out about uh, the Stanley Kubrick uh, theorists. 
Uh, no, I'm actually a big Kubrick fan, but I, I'm not familiar with this documentary. Oh, you got to watch it. I think it's on Netflix. It's called Room 237. And it's uh, it's essentially just audio interviews with four different people that are obsessed with The Shining and what they think the story of The Shining is. So one sees it as a metaphor for um, World War II, the genocide, uh, the Holocaust. One sees it as a metaphor for the genocide of the Native Americans. Another one sees it as uh, the Stanley Kubrick admitted to is admitting to faking the Apollo, the, the uh, moon landing. <laughs> yes. And I think there might be one more, but it's and all of them have really compelling evidence because they've looked at it for so long that they started to see it. And it becomes this strange thing where as you're watching, you're, you're like, oh, these people are nutty. These I can't believe how nutty these people are. Hey, that's a really good point. And I think that's kind of what's happening where you're talking about like the two peaks in, in the Jim Carrey movies, where I think if you start looking at something long enough, you're going to start finding it. So I would wager if you could invent something, just a silly one, like let's say um, Russell Crowe uh, is really into the Raven spirit. Now, I just pulled that out of my hands. Mm-hmm. I don't really even know that many Russell Crowe movies. I guarantee you. That if you look at his movies, you, you're probably going to be able to find a compelling series of events in any of those movies that he's referencing a raven god. You know, I've, I have no idea if it's there, but I'm, I'm sure I'll find it if I watch him long enough. I just got to say about the pattern recognition aspect that the longer that you look at this, you might see things. But the most compelling patterns are the ones that are true. And the best mystics are the ones who can say something that rings true. So the real quest is the whole initiatory process or the whole thing about Buddhism is that we start asleep and that we're trying to wake ourselves up or we start in darkness and we're trying to clarify and get better vision or we start as a really base crude metal and we're trying to refine our senses towards gold and get a gold-like spirit. So like alchemy, all these are analogies for moving towards truth and really seeking what is true and uh the real trick i feel like the whole goal is just simply to break the habitual mind because the worst fate is to not realize you're a slave to your own preconceived thoughts that just run in loops repetitious loops and everyone you see a lot of mouth breathers out there they're on the same fucking loop their whole life and they never figure anything out. They, they continually run into the same problems. They're manifesting their own same problems because they're stuck in the cyclical habitual mind. And so the whole thing about chaos magic or Buddhist practice or Zen is do something, introduce some technique to disrupt your own thinking because getting out of your own mind, as Alan Watts says, is one of the best things that can happen to you. It's one of the most refreshing things is to just simply <laughs> stop your train of thought. So, yeah, I think the whole goal really is just an altered state of consciousness. Or another analogy is in shamanism, they call it the shamanic state of consciousness, which is induced by drumming. Well, you can drum, you can chant mantra, you can read Crowley's Hymn to Pan. There's a lot of different things you can do, but the whole goal is to get out of the standard wavelength your consciousness is typically in, when you're stuck in the day-to-day events, I got to get here, oh, I got to go there. Do something to disrupt that and get into a kind of funky, kind of weird state of consciousness that can notice things a little bit differently. It's kind of the whole thing about smoking weed, too. 
smoking weed is about getting into a different state of consciousness where your mind is a little bit more relaxed, a little bit more elastic than it normally is. These are all real similar analogies for the same thing, which is trying to have a moment of clarity or a moment of something different so that it's not so routine and cyclical and like stuck in a rut. Yeah. 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 Well said. That's, that's the chaos magic thing. The, their phrase is uh, disordering your belief system is throwing in that disorder construct. So you can, instead of just walking on a path and not noticing, you can start seeing the path you're on and the things on the side. And you know, it's, yeah, these are, these are all metaphors for the same thing. Yeah. All right, man. Well, we're getting towards the last chunk of the show. I've had a great time talking to you. I think it's fascinating stuff. I, it always, it's, it's so elusive to me. I can't ever seem to wrap my head around it exactly, which I guess is the point. But um, we talked about having you do a tarot reading for us to try to gain some insight into the future of the higher side chats and the path that I'm on around here, which is kind of interesting. You know, it's just going to be a fun exercise and a good example for listeners who might have never been able to sit in on a tarot reading of this type. Uh, I think it's also a good way to close the chapter on the first 99 episodes and get prepared for the journey ahead in the next 99. But I guess tell us a little bit about tarot so we can maybe clear up any misconceptions as we get ready for this. Yeah, sure. Uh, Actually, tarot has their own, um, what we're just talking about, that kind of illumination process. Um, One of the metaphors for the, so the tarot is broken up into the minor arcana and the major arcana. So essentially, the minor arcana you can think of as essentially like a deck of cards. It's ace through ten and then court cards. Mm -hmm. And the major arcana are kind of the cool ones you've heard of, you know, death, the wheel of fortune, the lovers, the hierophant, the hermit, you know, the the kind of cool mystical ones. And the cool mystical ones, the major arcana, have a story called the journey of the fool. And the journey of the fool is told through those cards, um, zero being the fool through 21, which in the deck you'd probably run into the rider weight it's the the if you look up tarot that's kind of the one that people use uh, most often that or the uh, tarot de marseille but i use the thoth deck which is alistair crowley's deck and lady frida harris but anyway yeah. so you go it, some of the numbering is different it's the only reason i really bring it up but you can go so you go zero through um 21 following this fool's journey so essentially he's this blank slate that you know essentially neo taking the red pill Okay, I'm deciding to go in this weird thing. And you're a fool because, I mean, quite frankly, the Matrix is much more comfortable than that crappy boat that they're in, <laughs> you know, in the real world. Yeah, the Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, yeah. Um, so you follow his journey through the Major Arcana. So that's just, it's a fun, if you're getting into Tower, that's kind of the first thing you should look at because, actually, I hate to say should, but I think it's a helpful thing because you get, one, familiar with the Major Arcana, which are the kind of the powerful cards, and then two, it's a cool story and it's kind of it, it that's you know if you're familiar with that then you're familiar with pretty much the basics of every initiatory process but uh so tarot starts in <clears throat> the um, i'll go from a historical perspective because some people like to make this weird argument that it comes from egypt and you know the, all this mystical mm-hmm. whatever but it actually starts in in uh it's in Italy in about 14 something, um, they have a, they have a game called Taroki and essentially it's the deck of cards that we understand, but there's a, it ends up being, I think they had 54 cards or 56 in the original deck. And because they're kind of tired of the games they play, they start introducing wild cards that they call tri- uh, triumphs, the cards that beat other cards. So 
um, ace is the highest card in in the regular deck of cards, or let's say ace is low, so king's the highest card. So above the king, they would put the fool or uh, the 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 magician. So all it was was bitter, bigger cards to play your your card game with. Those triumphs became the trumps. There, that's the twenty-two higher arcana are called the trumps, and this card game got you know very popular and started to people started to use it as kind of a way to divine. They started using it to try to see the future in the same way people use sticks or tea leaves. And at some point they started to introduce in about, well, probably in the 15th, 16th century or so, they start getting the paintings on it. And that's the, uh, the Sforza. It's like S F O R Z A uh, is the kind of the earliest deck. That's about like 1450 something. And that's where like kind of the drawings start coming in and starts being recognizable as what you would think of as a tarot deck. And then so it starts, you know, kind of through that kind of renaissance cultiness, it starts getting more and more popular. And then the the deck that we kind of as we understand it is the like the Tarot de Marseille is about, I don't know, 1875 ish, you know, 1900, like the codified 78 cards as we look at it. Hey, this is a tarot deck. From that day till today, everybody would recognize it. And I mean, essentially, that's the history of it. It's unfortunately, it's not nearly as mystical. There's no secreting it out of some Egyptian crypt in the dead of night. It, it was a it was a card game and people started to use it to divine the future. And that's about the end of it. You know, right. But, so that kind of well, I mean, you know, that makes it seem more like uh, the original eight ball or something, you know. Which, yeah. which kind of in a in a gamey type of way, but is there do you attribute any real knowledge to be gained from a tarot reading, or do you think it do you just assume it's fun games? No, I think there's absolutely real knowledge to be had. Um, it depends. It, it, so the way that you can read it, there's multiple ways to do it. So I come at it from kind of a chaos magician side of it, where I'm using this as the shiny object. Is I'm I do. Well, when I do readings for myself, um, I use kind of just kind of the vibe of the card and kind of what it's trying to kind of get across to me in a very like, really like I'm, tra- I'm treating them almost as people, um, as, as sentient things that are trying to give me information. I'm trying to connect on some kind of psychic level to them. Th- that's one way to do it. And then the other side is the, the kind of traditional tarot where it's the cards mean pretty much what the cards mean. And there's, infinite amount of depth in it like especially the the crowley deck the thoth deck there's every card has just layers upon layers upon layers of symbolism in it it goes from there's like the kabbalistic numbering of it is goes to every number equates to you know a jewish uh letter of the jewish alphabet hebrew alphabet i mean like those two relate and then those two co-relate to uh one of the astrological symbols which then co-relates to like one of the four elements there's just these vast, vast ways you can kind of look into it on a just what's on the card level beyond any kind of beyond any kind of like psychic or spiritual side. You know, there's huge amounts of information. And right there is if you're reading, you know, it's one of those things where if you really need help and you happen to be reading, reading a book, you'll find that one sentence. You're like, oh, wow, I'm so glad I was reading this book at this time. Mm-hmm. I think what tarot on the traditional level is doing is kind of opening your mind because there's so much information to be grabbed and kind of opening your mind to kind of let you see the answer that's already in front of you. Okay. So on a psychological level, it's you're allowing yourself to see what you probably should have seen if you were, you know, this perfect unencumbered thing, which none of us are. Right. 
Okay. Good. And then the way I like to do it is kind of, I mean, really, it's just divinatory. Like, I, I, I like to see it as like kind of a way to just have get in contact with whatever that spiritual force is. And I think that's more fun. But that's that weird chaos magician thing in me where it's, <laughs> it's you know, I, I just like, I like doing it that way. It's fun. But um, yeah. Yeah. I laid out, I laid out, a, oh, sorry. What were you saying? Oh, I was just going to ask Kyle. I mean, I know that he's gotten into tarot in the last so many years. I was wondering if you, if this has helped you at all, or if you've gained any insight from your going down the rabbit hole of tarot. Yeah. And it's, I mean, I really like the Thoth deck, the Alistair Crowley's deck, exactly the one that Alex is talking about as well. And I've been reading a book about understanding that deck and how you even start to break it down. And it is so nuanced. If you've ever tried to, yeah, it is Duquette's book. Yeah, yeah, that, that's amazing, yeah. It's so good. It breaks it down that each card has a specific astrological um, component, like uh, counterpart. Like there's, okay, basically here's how it works. There's a card in the major arcana for all of the planets, including the moon. There's one for all of the astrological signs. There's one for more like alchemical um like salt, mercury, and uh, phosphorus or sulfur. And these have to do with, uh, then they uh, have to do with colors. All the colors are very, very carefully chosen based on all this. So there's systems of symbolism that are so refined. Like Crowley's system of symbolism is very, very, very refined. And just by looking at the cards, I mean, just by doing it and not even getting the deepest reading off of it, just by experience with the cards, it starts to, you just get more deeper and deeper. It gets its hooks in you, I guess. I don't know what it is, but like the more time I, you spend with a tarot deck, you just get familiar with the color of the card, the feel of the card, as you said, Alex. And, um, I don't know, it just, it, it all ties into the Kabbalistic tree of life. And the 22 cards are the paths from one Sephiroth to the next. And that is a huge, like, foundational thing to understanding what the deck is trying to say. It's talking about all these paths that connect the tree of life. And then you have to get into who are the Sephiroth, like, who are the gods in Egyptian mythology, and who are these numbers? Like, it, it then comes back to numbers being foundational too in the understanding so uh, like zero being the fool and zero being the uh all of the other cards are really within zero or as crowley says all paths are loyal to innocence meaning all the other manifestations of spiritual events that happen in life are ultimately come from a place of innocence of kind of like it's just an unlimited canvas for anything to happen hmm so yeah. I just wanted to throw that in there because I love this deck and I'm super interested in all the all the nuances that he was throwing in there. Right on. Well, that's a pretty good pretty good uh, background and and place to start. Then I guess. Uh, cool. So you want to do this thing, Alex? Yeah, sure. I uh, just want quickly before I go, just uh, start doing the reading. Uh, Lon Milo Duquette did this wonderful series called "The Sexual Alchemy of the Thos Tarot." Um, he's a Crowley expert. The guy's amazing. You should have him on the show. Wonderful dude. But uh, he did a video of it and he goes through all this and he also talks about the alchemical journey of the knight errant and showing how you can make the philosopher's stone. It's amazingly deep rapid. But Lon Milo Duquette, I wholeheartedly give him the thumbs up of recommendation. Nice. So the the 
Sylph deck, the recommendation, if you open up, all right, so if you open up a deck of cards, a deck of tarots, the most popular deck is the Rider Weight. And the one that people tend to use, the layout you use for the Rider Weight is the Celtic Cross is one of the most popular ones, or just a simple three card spread. So a three card spread goes, well, it's three cards. You flip over one in the middle, and that kind of represents the, um, that's like the, that's you, essentially, or the, the problem you're trying to, you're trying to delve into. And then okay. the cards on the left and the right are the ones that relate to the problems around you or the, the nature of the querent, you know? So you can have, like, if you want past, present, future or, like, um, uh, mind, body, spirit, you know, you get the idea where it's, yeah, that's yeah. the delving in. So that's, and then the Celtic cross is essentially, you cross two cards in the middle, the face up, and one is kind of you and the major influences around you. And then you do a card on top, left, right, and then four in a row on the right side. And those are essentially recent, recent influences, past influences, future influences, and then kind of like where you want to go. And then the okay. stuff on the right is this weird, like family and friends and what you want the final outcome. It, it, I hate that style, but a lot of people use it. So I thought I'd reference it. Um, I'm uh, just to piss off everybody in the audience that likes tarot. I hate the Rider Weight deck. Um, it, I don't think it's cool looking, and I, I it doesn't feel magical <laughs> at all. <laughs> it's prude. <laughs> it is. It's, it's so prude. prude. That's a damn fine word for it. Yeah. So um, the Crowley deck, um, and just to be my pedantic ass self, it is Crowley because he is holy. It's in one of his little poems he wrote. Um, people always pronounce his name Crowley. It's, uh, he wrote a poem, Crowley. my name is Crowley because I'm so holy. People call me Crowley. Be- people call me Crowley because they want me to be growly or he's not a very good poet, but <laughs> he does show you how to say it. And I learned that one from Duquette. But so he teaches us his spread essentially is this. You flip over three cards in the middle, like the three card spread. And that's you. So the three cards in the middle are you and the situation surrounding you. Then you do three cards on your top right, three cards on your top left, three cards bottom right, three cards bottom uh, bottom left. So it's 15 card spread. Okay. And the top right and the top left are essentially the paths that you're on. You can call it the future if you want. Um, you know, just say the future, it's easier. Uh, and then bottom left and bottom right. So bottom left is the psychological influences that you should kind of take into account when you're choosing which way you want to move. And bottom right is, well, just, it's just stuff that's going on in the universe that you have no hope of, of ever getting your head around. So it's more, it's seeing what, what boot is uh, stomping on you or seeing what hand is petting you. It's the, the karma and the, the destiny that's surrounding you, which mm-hmm. those can be depressing. Cause if you get a lot of like weird, like negative cards, you're like, failure futility it's like oh crap <laughs> but uh <laughs> thankfully for you guys you didn't get that so <laughs> when we decided to do uh the tower thing i flipped some cards thinking about you guys well thinking about one of you at least about the show <laughs> and um so yeah this is what you got so the nature of you and the querent ends up being the ace of swords which uh is really incredibly uh, accurate swords is uh air uh, so air is related to intellect, um, um, communication, words, uh, mm-hmm. essentially podcasts. Um, and then you also got love and fortune in 
regular uh, other tower decks, it's the Wheel of Fortune, but in the in the Thoth deck, it's Fortune. So, okay, not that a bad, all right. Yeah, not a bad beginning. So, uh, essentially, you're in, invocating, you know, you're you're communicating the uh, change that you want in the universe, and love kind of speaks, you know, harmony and you know that nice duality. It's a it's a two. So twos always speak of essentially think of it as yin and yang or or um, the divergent paths it's choice mm-hmm. it's you know so that's good so you have uh so it's essentially your choice you've got fortune on your side so it looks like your question is basically you know your what you're doing about being a communicator so that's pretty good for a podcast host yeah that seems like it it fits pretty well and it's obviously incredibly positive i'm not gonna argue with it yeah for, fortune and love i'll take it hell yeah so you're <laughs> Your future stuff, to call it that way, your right-hand path is is the Hierophant, or Hierophant, however you want I mispronounce everything, so I'm just getting Hierophant. Uh, you got the Two of Discs, which is Change. Again, two, nice choice thing. And then you got the, what is that? That's the Five of Swords, which is Strife. So... Uh-oh. And it's, it just means, it, it means, uh, not necessarily... Well, kind of means it's kind of fighting. Um, it's more energy, uh, will being forced at something like uh, kind of hard to describe. It, it's it's more a, a valiant effort could be almost called that as well, especially when it's paired with because you got change in the Hierophant, and the Hierophant is essentially that's that's Thoth or, or Hermes. Which oh god, Crowley's will fucking punch me for saying that. I take that back. It's because there's a card in the deck that's supposed to be Hermes. And mm-hmm. I, so I shouldn't say that, but the Hierophant is divine wisdom, essentially, is the, the manifestation of wisdom. So you've got a choice. So one of your futures essentially is, you know, choosing to fight on the side of wisdom. And then okay. the other side, you have the hanged man. Uh-oh. Uh, the, no, the hanged man's actually good. And it's a beautiful <laughs> card. Uh, the, the knight of swords. And... The Four of Cups. So, hmm. uh, essentially, that's, uh, I mean, the Hangman it speaks of, again, it's change. It's flipping a situation upside down, um, much like the man in the picture. Knight of, Knight of uh, Swords, Knights, and generally the court cards, anything with a person on it in a court card generally represents an actual person. There's other, there's, of course, subtleties, but that's an easy way to read it. And then the, uh, the, what cups did I just say it was? Four, I think. Oh, yeah, you're right. Uh, four of cups is luxury. So four of cups, I mean, luxury is pretty, you know, straightforward. Uh, <laughs> it, you know, it's, it either speaks of luxury in the way of uh, wealth and opulence, but it can also be um, stagnation, uh, uh Finding yourself, you know, uh, comfortable enough that you stop yeah, kind of pressing yeah. forward, you know. Makes sense. Uh, classic problem with comedians. They get too successful and then they're no longer good at their trait. Yeah, that is a very good point. Yeah, that's kind of what it's saying. So you're, you're essentially making a choice for kind of the fighting for wisdom, fighting for, you know, that kind of communication path. And one of the dangers of that is that you may kind of get a bit of success and that can essentially turn you into being lazy and, you know, not writing new jokes. 
<laughs> and then well, I'm already lazy, so I'm ready for the success whenever it's ready for me. Hey, there you go. <laughs> uh, and so your psychological, again, of the things that kind of assist your decision, though, in this one, your future is kind of, you know, oftentimes there's like two very, dis- you know, disparate paths to go down. But in this one, they're pretty complementary. All right. But your, uh, your psychological can't assistant, mess this up. Yeah, you're doing well. Um, you've got the fool, uh, which is essentially where well, we talked about him. He's he's kind of the blank slate, the he's ideas and thought, spirituality. It's it's he's the guy that's about to take the journey. Um, the uh, four swords, which is truce. So I think that speaks to the fighting nature of your future of just keep in mind that you don't have to, you know, keep in mind when you're barreling through things, you know, there is an option to be peaceable. And then you've got um, prudence, uh, eight of discs, which essentially is the exact same thing I just said about uh, truce. Be prudent. Um, so if you do get that kind of success, you know, that's your psychological nature is to make sure you don't uh, take it as a given and make sure you, you know, do it wisely. And then your gods and goddesses and karma and all the things that can possibly screw with you. You've got the knight of wands, the... Eight of Swords, which is Interference, and the Universe, which is the last of the major arcana of the Trunks. So uh, that's actually kind wow. of interesting, too, that that kind of speaks of an actual person uh, interfering with you, this this Knight of Wands. Um, uh, the man. Maybe. it's uh, Yeah, because <laughs> that's uh, the Wands are fire. So it's um, kind of, um, you know... Fiery. I mean, I don't know why I have to describe it even more than that. It's just, you know, imagine fire and that's that kind of dude's personality. Am I going to have to fight Alex Jones is what you're saying? Can I read just this one <laughs> yeah, thing? Be- I happen to have the Duquette book right in front of me and he says, this is Crowley's words about the Prince of Wands, this particular guy who's out to get us. It says, he is often violent, especially in the expression of an opinion, but he does not necessarily hold the opinion about which he is so emphatic. His character is intensively noble and generous, but he may be an extravagant boaster. Hmm. His Alex current Jones. his courage is financial is fanatically strong, but his endurance is indefatigable. He is always fighting against the odds and always wins in the long, the very long run. So this is this is my opposition. Is uh, that what well, this? Where this pops up in? Yeah, sort of. Well, it comes in. This is kind of the forces beyond your control, I think is the way they word it. Okay. But generally that's, um, usually it's kind of like um, gaudy stuff, you know, like, or, or astrological stuff or like the nature of where the world's sitting right now. Um, but in this one, since there's a, since there's a, 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 a court card with a dude, dude on it and it says interference. But the last one is the universe, which is the culmination of a journey. Um is the that's the last card in the fool's journey you know it's the that you know it's the last thing totality of everything yeah it's the yeah it's inertia even it's it's whether you move on or you can and it actually could speak of delay so it's essentially it's a good read it's you know it seems like you're doing right just don't sit on your laurels and don't let some ginger fuck with you i think is really what the card just i hate redheads man there you go and and (laughs) I think I think you're in in good hands then because you just watch out for <laughs> watch out for the interferer and yeah that's the story that these cards are telling you so that's the story of the cards and then the way I read it is this read would actually be really similar to the way I do it but I just kind of stand above them and just kind of take it in as a whole and 
see what's jumping out at me and then move on from there. But in this case, it's all pretty straightforward. It's not like there's a lot of conflict. So it's pretty much what it, what it just jumped out at me anyway. Right. Well, that, that part of it is interesting that the, the messages seem to be fairly clear. You know, the little groupings of three seem to, uh, you know, be aligned. You're not getting a yes, a no, and a maybe, you know. It seems like they all kind of are in the same realm. It seems ultimately pretty positive. I don't know. Uh, you know, you guys are way more familiar with the deck. Would you say it's the deck, the cards in the deck are mostly positive or is it a 50 50 split like did i just get really lucky or is it normal that most of the cards have a positive connotation to them it's an interesting question um it's weird you know i don't even know if i can answer in any kind of like straightforward way because for me it's i tend to think of this deck actually has more negative cards in it but wow but i don't think that's actually true like math wise it's just kind of like that's the vibe I get off of it sometimes. It seems like this is kind of a strict deck. This is like a disciplinarian deck. Like, because I mean, Crowley's the that guy knows everything about the. I mean, he is a vast repository of occult knowledge. So, this isn't one of those kind of sissy, you know, dancing around decks. This is some hardcore, you know, occult deck. So, there's a bit of kind of a, a strictness to it that I kind of associate as negative, but. No, it's, yeah, I don't know, probably a split down the middle. But in, even in this reading, there are a lot of cards that could be negative, but what they're, because it, it works in relation with the cards around it. Right. So, you know, like like the Knight of Wands and Interference could be bad, but you've got the universe next to it, which kind of speaks of, oh, well, that's, you know, this kind of eases things. Like you had the, the, Knight, of, you had the Knight of Swords, right? Yeah, the Knight of Swords with the Hangman, so that's a change. But if you had like another negative card, which you happen to have... Uh, you had like luxury up that way, but if you had a negative card there, that could be really bad. Like, so it's it's one of those things where it really depends on the way the card lays. So yeah, there are negatives here, but because they're offset, they almost become positives. Or in this case, it's I wouldn't even say this is a negative or a positive reading. It's a reading that bespeaks change. Which if you think change is good, then then it's a positive reading. Because yeah, man, if I were to find this, this is a change reading. I mean, everything is speaking of a, a split path, like divergence, a choice, and it seems like you already made the choice. So. Wow. Well, that that's well, man, I'm about 45 days out of quitting my day job. That was a huge change. Um, my trajectory now is to just maintain the show and my T-shirt thing and never have a boss again. Wake up when I want. That's the change that I'm looking for. And I've made that change very recently. So that kind of has a tie in. And in terms of change i've always said that i love it i've always been a big fan of having my life looking at my life from um you know the checkpoints of a year and looking at what it was the previous year and i love to see it be way different than it was the year before i've always enjoyed change and kind of embraced it and maybe that's why i got fooled by obama <laughs> but um yeah that sounds that sounds pretty interesting yeah we all we all got fooled by him the um Fun thing about the Crowley deck, too, uh, just on that note, if you uh, just go on the internet or, or uh, Kyle has the deck, if you look at the hero font, the mask in the top right looks exactly like Barack Obama to me. Um, oh, no. It's really weird. I mean, of course, it came out, you know, about 60 years before he was born. But the mask, it looks exactly like him. And it just always freaks me out once once he started doing speeches. And I'm like, what? The, whoa, that's the dude. So anyway, <laughs> but um, your year in review thing just reminded me a great thing if you're going to start tarot or start anything occult. 
is, and this is such a cheesy term and I'm sorry, but that's what they call it. Do a book of shadows, which is you journal every magical work you do. Every time you do a tarot reading, write down what the tarot said to you. Check it after a while to see what was right, what was wrong. Every time you do a magical work, every time you meditate, write down everything because it's it's one of those things that you can really trick yourself into thinking nothing's working or everything's working. So if you have it written down and look back, you can see, you know, as objectively as you can, what's what's functioning in your work instead of like if you're a negative person, like I tend to view things kind of on the crappy side of life. Mm -hmm. So I write it down. I look back. I'm like, oh, man, wow, I have improved on this like this. You know, it's it's an affirmation. And then if you're one of those people that thinks everything's perfect, you know, you can look back and get a shock of reality like, oh, you know what? This isn't as good as I thought it was. I'm not as strong in the arts as I thought it was. And just an important thing. Just make sure to, and just, we'll call it a journal because Book of Shadows is really lean. <laughs> right on. Um, well, I mean, before we close the books on this, Kyle, do you have any thoughts on that reading or those cards that you uh, didn't get to articulate? Um, just kind of a general thing being that the lower numbered cards have to do with actually like higher positions on the tree of life. So in the particular suits like wands or cups or whatever it is, if you get like a, say a two, three or four, those are actually very good, typically very strong, positive cards, as opposed to once you get into like the seven, eight, nines, those are considered much more descended, further fallen from source or from grace. And they're much more mixed up. That's when you get into shit about like conflict and oppression and uh, suppressing stuff. But they're more free and kind of light in nature and good and kind of just like overall playful when they're lower number cards. And it seemed like in the reading there was a pretty good number of lower number cards, yeah. which I thought was good. Yeah, yeah, you had two twos in there. That's a good point. I, 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 if I had thought of it, I would have said that. That's everything you just said is what I agree with. <laughs> wow. <laughs> which, yeah, that's, I mean, that's true. I just, uh, I just didn't remember to say that. <laughs> right, yeah, there's so much to yeah. this stuff that I figured having two people who are vested in it would just be so much more complimentary and, and bring out those extra things that people can forget when they're talking about something so complex, but mm -hmm. oh, and there's still, you know, dozens upon dozens upon dozens of more levels to, to meaning in, in these days, even the, on the back of the, on the back of the, um, the tarot cards, there's a, uh, cross. It's the, essentially the rosy cross, you know, Rosicrucian, you can overlap the meaning on, but just that, if you listen to Duquette's explanation of what that means is about, 45 minutes long full of everything you've never heard of it's it's got reference to the different uh, cycles of the astrological uh, season the the yuga cycles it's it's ridiculously complicated and that's just the back of the card <laughs> you know it's it's amazingly deep and it's super cool if you get hooked into it but it's also one of those things that you can get hooked into it and the next thing you know it's six years later and that's all you've done <laughs> yeah Wow, man. This this has been a great episode. A lot of fun. I really appreciate you coming on and joining us to talk about some of this stuff. And an excellent way to close the show uh, with that tarot reading. I think that was excellent. Would you, would you like to tell the people a little bit about your other work and where they can keep up with you before we close it out? Oh, yes, I would love to. Thank you. Uh, well, I do a podcast called The Alex Cast. Uh, I spell my name with two X's because I hate marketing and I'm an idiot. So uh, if you go to alexcast.com, Alex with two X's, um, you can find the podcast, which I talk about some of this stuff and then, yeah, it's pretty, I mean, really, this is probably pretty close to an episode I would do, except you ask better questions than me and actually prepared things. I just kind of uh, gap, 
But um, uh, yeah, that's there. And you can click on there. There's a books link. And the two books I wrote, Periphery and the Void Sutras, are available. Um, if you liked what I was talking about in this show, Periphery is right up your alley. I mean, it literally is just an initiatory process. It's it's a fun fiction book. So it's not it, it, it's not it's not some boring thing that an occultist is trying to trick you into reading. Like you don't, if you didn't know it was about like a hidden occult thing, it's just that, you know, there is a fun fiction story with a lot of weird psychedelic scenes and strangeness. So that's there. And, um, yeah, there's just click around the website. That's pretty much where you can find me. And I, uh, tweet way too often, uh, on Twitter. So that's at the Alex cast. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's really where you can get me. Just go to alexcast.com. I got all the links there. There's, videos of me talking about tarot there's a couple of videos of that i talk about the egyptian tarot on there and uh there's some of the art and oh as i said if you go i think it's episode 146 i've got the picture of the thing where i wrote merkaba which i mean really it's it's about as impressive as listening to me talk about it but the picture's there <laughs> <laughs> that's cool man well powerful stuff i really appreciated it i think this is a great 99th episode uh take care of yourself man hopefully we'll talk again in the future yeah, yeah. Thank you very much for having me on. Uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was quite fun. Really enjoyed it. All right, man. Take care. Good to see you. Wow, man. That that was a pretty great episode. I enjoyed a lot of the content, and the reading was pretty damn positive. It says, essentially, from what I understood, my only real concern is things being too easy and having too much success. Yeah, it seems, <laughs> it seems like getting too comfortable was part of what came up in the reading. Right. It's, it's funny that that did come out because that is in the forefront of my mind a lot of the time. Because when I started this show, I thought about what's going to separate this show from other shows, what bothers me about shows as they do get popular. And a lot of times the beginning of shows becomes way too many ads, way too many sponsors, too much of the same shit over and over again, too many updates about the host. And Shows tend to get away from what made them special and get into this area of, oh, well, I've got to update my audience on everything that's going on. And sometimes I worry that I get too much into that. And so I try to balance that with episodes that go straight into a guest within three minutes. And I'm, I'm very conscious of those types of pitfalls, or at least I'm trying to be. How, how well executed it is is up to the listeners. But I definitely keep that in mind. So it was kind of interesting to have that come up in the reading. Totally. And I think uh, a good new thing that's going on with the show is talking with the Money Bomb winners in the pre-show. I really dig like that. that. I just love to hear. I mean, a, a lot of times the audio's jacked up or it may sound like not as flowing of a conversation as it is with a guest, but I still think it's cool. I like to hear a real person who really won and they almost essentially always say, well, I'm going to kick back more money for the next winner because... <laughs> It's like I a, I don't know, it's a cool vibe. It is, man. It I, I've gotten really, really lucky with that. And it, it's worked out exactly as I'd hoped. We've given away about $1,000 in three different rounds. And it's helped me out immensely. Uh, I wouldn't have taken the leap I did if it hadn't been for this. And at the same time, it's helping individuals. Like three people got like huge amounts of money. Like, you know, an average of $333 a piece. And that in the Midwest would have paid my rent. You know, I, that's a huge bonus. And to get that from a podcast that's essentially free, essentially doesn't really have advertisers. It's just one dude sitting in his office in San Diego. I mean, it's it's become a powerful vehicle. And of course, I don't ever want people to think that 
the money is my money. Like it's, it's literally generated by the audience. All I am is a middleman between the collective and the individual. I get it from the collective. I take a piece for myself (laughs) and then I, I I pass it on to the individual, but I, I, I don't know. It's been great, man. It's fascinating talking to you. I love when you join me on these shows, this whole theme and realm and spectrum of topics is very interconnected and goes on forever and of course it's great to hear that because we've got plenty of more shows to do in the future apparently because we're going to be doing this for a long time as long as i don't um, get used to sitting in the lap of luxury which (laughs) has has never really been a problem so Um, that said man it's been a wild ride of 99 episodes. You've been a great friend, a lot of help. And even when you can't co-host, you've always listened to the shows and given me feedback and an outlet to voice some of the frustrations that for me are probably best left off the air. So I don't know if we'd be here if it wasn't for you, man. So thanks so much. It has been a real blast so far. Well, uh, I really appreciate you saying that and thank you as well. And, you know, my wife Carrie is very much an advocate for our friendship and she thinks it's so cool that we're able to over the years stay in such closeness where it's just it's always good between us and you're always encouraging me to pursue my goals and stuff and always checking in and that really goes a long way with me as well so I'm glad to be the biggest supporter of THC that I can be I try to spice it up when I come on Because I feel like a lot of times the tendency with this mystical stuff, with the esoteric stuff, is it gets boring and obscure. It starts to, it's like, okay, we're going to be talking about something really weird and magic, and that's that's fucking cool. And then you start to hear it, and it's like the history of the blah, 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 and this happened, and you're like, uh... Okay. And you just kind of tune out. But I am so passionately interested in this shit, I try to say it in a concise manner so i like to go on rants about this stuff just to try to just to try to make it seem a little sexy because it is sexy that was crowley's whole thing that's why i called the rider weight deck prude is because all of these analogies are really about the sex act because the ultimate creative thing you can do is have sex that creates life it's what uh, all life is based off of prior sex went down and so Uh, a little respect must be paid to how sex is interconnected to every single thing. Yeah, it's the conjuring of a being. It's the ultimate conjuring. (laughs) And there's a card, the tower. What the tower means is the tower is really the spent dick. The tower is the spent dick (laughs) after the sex act. It has lost its power. It is limp. It's fucking, it's nothing now. It can't fuck. It cannot fuck. And... That is a metaphor for uh, an immediate loss of power, an immediate transformation from a powerful position to a a weak position. And uh, it's all metaphor, but it's all tied in with sex. Well, let's be glad I didn't get the tower. (laughs) Yeah. Your phallus is still strong, my (laughs) friend, and you have not received that tower just yet. Wow. Well, on that note, uh, I think it's about time we call it in. (laughs) Uh, I agree. Please remember about the THC Money Bomb or the Amazon wish list. It is my birthday on the 25th, and it will be the 100th episode that week. Synchronicity like a motherfucker. I love you guys. Keep doing what you do. Thanks for listening. 